leadership coaching gathering this past week, and our facilitator and friend asked us to reflect on several questions, one of which was this, what is one of your worst habits in your life? What would you say? We're going to start right over here with, <laughs> just ask you to stand up, just tell us what your worst habit is. So I thought, well, I'm like one of the leaders here. I should, I should, you know, be, I should quickly jump in. So I, 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 the first thing that popped in my head was I said, I eat too fast. Uh, Mary says that when I eat, she goes, sometimes it seems like you're in a race, like it's a contest. Anybody have that issue? And, and so when I eat, it's, it's like it's, um, it's like a task to get done. And the problem is when I eat too fast, I usually eat too much. Exactly. I eat too much. I don't know if it's a relic from my childhood when there were nine of us kids and <laughs> you're like, I better get it right now or I might not get it at all. Or especially like that and I'm not going to get that. I don't know if it's that or if it's that. I always wanted to get outside and play again. And so I'd eat as quickly as I could because mom said when you finish your food, you could go back and you could do whatever. So I still like to go out and play and... Um, Mary doesn't let me do it until I've eaten all the food on my plate. <laughs> so that's one, of my, that's one of my worst habits. But I began to think about it later. I thought, okay, that was a little bit shallow. I mean, it's, it's a deal about my physical health. It's important. But I started to think, what are some other my worst habits? And I thought of another one and that I think has far more profound implications for me. And I wonder if you deal with this as well, that I often am oblivious to the most important person in the room. You go, what, what, what do you mean by that? I'll spend time with the Lord in the morning, have some time with God, and then it's easy for me to go from meeting to appointment to phone call to message prep to time with Mary to email to whatever, and and not stay in touch with the, the person who is always with me. The one who invites me to receive his wisdom, to live with his strength, to find encouragement in his capable oversight. And if you deal with loneliness, that's only compounded, right? That's not a reality for me in my life. But if it is for you, sometimes you might feel like, man, I just wish I had a friend who, with whom I could do life, that I could share with, that was always with me, that I, I didn't feel alone. I, I don't like feeling lonely like this. Do you find that you're ever guilty of Jacob's failure? This is what would be my, one of my worst habits. When he says in Genesis 28, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was what? Not aware of it. Surely the Lord was in this place, and I was not aware of it. What, what if we could live with the sense of God's constant presence, that Jesus is always with you, that he's your best friend and he's your advocate, that his wisdom and strength are always there for the asking. When temptation comes knocking on your door, that you can ask him, he who was sinned in every way like we are, but he never gave in, that he would, you just say, Jesus, right now. And all of his strength would be infused into your life. 
that as you look to an unknown future or some kind of uncertainty, you're trying to make a decision that you could just go to him at any moment and just say, Lord, I need, I need your direction this moment. I'm not really sure what to do and I don't want to make the wrong mistake. I want to inquire of you. Surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. Can you, do you ever say that? Is that ever something you'd say that's probably a worst habit of mine as well? Here's the starting place. We have to believe, first of all, that it's true, right? We have to believe that actually that we can enjoy God's powerful presence every moment of the day, to go through a day and, and know that I'm never alone. What I know is this, it'll never happen. I'll never have a sense of God's presence if I think that's some kind of far-fetched dream and that he's a, a distant deity that I, I, I can't really know. So what does the Bible actually say, you ask? I'm, gl- I'm glad you asked. Let's turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And while you're turning, I want to say uh, greetings to our friends at Lorraine Correctional. I'm looking forward to being at a service with you soon, Lord willing, and some of the staff who are there joining you. To the 1030 Middlebrook Heights, all of you there, uh, I, I, I'll be back with you next week and, and to others in our online community. And by the way, if you're able, those of you who are engaging online, if you're able to join us, if your circumstances and health allow we love to have you join us, as Pastor Kareem said earlier and Rennell, uh, at our Comeback Sunday next week. We're going to have the cafe open. Uh, we would love to have you here. And I had someone tell me this past week, they said, uh, you know what? They saw me there at a Bible study here during the week. And they said, I heard about Comeback Sunday, and it's been two years since I've been on site for a service at Grace. That's the day I'm coming. Thanks for having that day to have us all sort of come back together. And so uh, we'd love to have that be you too. Um, and hopefully at Lorraine Correctional will be some, our cafe will be open here and hopefully for, you'll have some goodies there as well. Well, we're in this five-week series entitled uh, Signs, One Story That Leads to Jesus. And there are all kinds of signs in the Old Testament that point forward, we said, to Jesus. So we've seen how he's our Passover lamb. He's our high priest. And today we want to look at another one. And we're going to start here in John 2, but let me just mention one scripture from Luke 24 that we had looked at in the first week. When Jesus, he's talking to some followers, and he, he himself identifies these signs in the Old Testament. It says this. He says, wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer before entering his glory? And then Jesus took them through all the writings of Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, and the prophets. That's the rest of the Old Testament explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning whom? Himself. So he he goes through the Old Testament and he says, "I, I want you to see all the signs, the clues, the puzzle pieces that were pointing, Jesus said to me. Ultimately, this book, really all of history, is held together by one person, and that's Jesus, the creator and the sustainer of all. We've said before, if I'm right with him, nothing else in my life really matters. And if I'm wrong with him, nothing in my life, nothing else really matters. I like how the 20th century theologian Richard Niebuhr put it. He's the one who wrote a really often discussed book, Christ and Culture. And, and Niebuhr said this about Jesus' place in history. He said, Jesus is the Rosetta Stone of faith whose existence explains all that goes before Jesus, in other words, makes sense of of how do we get here? How did the brokenness happen? What is he doing to fix it, to restore? And what's going to happen one day when he comes again? 
And so he's the Rosetta Stone. He's the one who makes sense of the big puzzle that often feels like it has a lot of pieces missing. Let's see one of the signs here in John chapter two that Jesus identifies. Before we do, can I just show you, I've been showing you a picture each week for context. And here's a picture uh, for today. You're going to see the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, In John chapter two, Jesus is visiting the temple, this amazing structure only building of its kind in Israel, uh, and it's right in the heart of Jerusalem. All the places, uh, these, you know, Jerusalem, there, you can still visit the western wall of the temple today. And in fact, Pastor Joel and Ellen Bubna, we had planned a trip a couple years ago. COVID had some other plans for us. But Mary and I and Joel and Ellen are going to be leading a trip to Israel next April, a year from this month. Lord willing, and you can contact the church for more details. We'd love to have you join us if that works for you. But keep the picture picture of that temple in your head. With that setting in mind, let's read what Jesus says here in John chapter 2, begin in verse 18. Jesus says this, the interaction. The Jews then responded to Jesus, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? That is, he was pushing out corrupt business people who were ripping off people on temple grounds, and Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will, what? Raise it again in three days. And they're going, say what? They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Whoa, whoa. (laughs) They're like, this wonder of the world, that picture you had seen, took 46 years to construct, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? And one thing they were right about, and it's this, that that the temple was an architectural wonder. It was a massive construction project. In fact, you read in the book of Chronicles that in the building of the first temple, there were 30,000 laborers assigned to cut timber in Lebanon, just to cut the, 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 the wood. There were 80,000 more individuals to cut and shape stone, and there were 70,000 who were on the transportation team, your Amazon drivers. Uh, and there were 3,600 managers looking for something, I mean, who supervised the work. Uh, you can imagine the enormous cost. Estimates are that today, if you were to build the temple, it would cost over $150 billion. The stadiums that are built today often cost $1 billion, just, you know, these massive stadiums that taxpayers get to participate in. Think of the gold alone, 34 tons of gold. Some say it was half the gold in the known world at that time. Gold is selling for what right now? Just shy of $2,000 an ounce. So just do the math. $2,000 an ounce, 34 tons of gold, and you just get a picture. This was amazing. They started with the movable tent. You're going to see a picture of the tabernacle here. And we saw that last week, sometimes called the tent of meeting, because that's where Moses would go to meet with God. And it was special, but it didn't compare with the replacement structure that Solomon builds, this temple. That right there was the focal point of Israel, Jerusalem, a holy site, even today for the world's 
three monotheistic, monotheistic religions, Judaism and Christianity and Islam. If when you go there, they, they all find that to be a holy spot. But hands down, here was the most important thing about that temple. It was the place where God lived among his people, right? Where you could meet with God. Here, here's it was just, there was no place more important. So when the temple was dedicated, it's one of the greatest occasions in all of history. It's mentioned in the book of Chronicles, Second uh, Chronicles 7. I'm going to read from that here in a moment. You're welcome to turn there, Second Chronicles 7, the opening verses. It's also mentioned in First Kings chapter 8. I mean, this was an event that was unlike almost any other event. And look at the phrase that's mentioned three times here in Second Chronicles chapter 7. It says this, when Solomon, this is verse one, when Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven and burned up the burnt offerings and sacrifices and the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glorious presence of the Lord filled it. When all the people of Israel saw the fire coming down and the glorious presence of the Lord, they're sort of repeating something here for emphasis, aren't they? filling the temple, they fell face down on the ground and worshiped and praised the Lord saying, he is good, his faithful love endures forever. This was an amazing moment. There's a stunning cloud, there's God's presence, there's heavenly fire. And for the following centuries, that was the place that you would go to meet with God, to worship God. No matter where you live, you made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And by the way, you, you would travel up to Jerusalem. When we travel to Columbus, we don't say I'm going up to Columbus. We usually say I'm going where? Down to Columbus, just because Cleveland's a better place and we're going to all of you in Columbus there. Um, you make your way up. Why? It always says, if you read the scripture, you go, why? Well, even if they're going south, they go up. Partly because it was a city that was built on a hill, but it was also the place where you were, it was a place of such import that you were going up to Jerusalem. That was the place where, where God's presence was among the people. You went up to Jerusalem, not just physically, but also that's where you met with God. So then you hear these shocking words from Jesus. He says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Let's just take a look at the temple one more time, just to make sure you have this in your head. This is the centerpiece of Israel, the pride of the nation. And this was such a bold claim by Jesus that it became one of the accusations against him at his trial. That uh, they're like, is he going to bulldoze? He said he's going to bulldoze this place. He didn't actually say that, but, but the um, destruction or the desecration of a temple or of a religious site um, in the Roman Empire was of such an offense that it was, it was, you know, there was, it was a capital crime. So you read in the Gospel of Mark how it says this, how some stood up in, at Jesus' trial and gave this false testimony against Jesus. They said, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with human hands. Hours later they issue the same insult, almost identical words to hurl at Jesus as he hangs on a cross dying. But they had two misunderstandings. First, Jesus didn't say that he would destroy the temple. And maybe that's why at his trial it says that, that even the witness statements didn't agree with each other and it sort of faltered. Because what did Jesus actually say? He said, 
destroy this temple. You can destroy this temple and I will raise it again. He wasn't talking about the building, was he? In the end, he, he could have done that too. He could have rebuilt a building in three days if he chose to do that, but he's talking about another temple and that's the more important thing they missed. First, they, they thought he said he was gonna destroy it, but secondly, they missed the most important point that there was a new temple. There was a different temple. Jesus wasn't talking about the physical structure. John clarifies for us, the gospel writer, and he says in verse 21, he says, but the temple he had spoken of was what? His body. Friends, that was a game changer. Do we grasp what Jesus is saying? He's saying, my body, I am the true, the better temple. That temple back there was just a sign, a shadow of who I am. That I'm the temple. I am God among you. Jesus was declaring what the early church would affirm, that in Christ, all the fullness of God lives in a human body. Jesus was the presence of God on earth. And so the temple was a sign that pointed him to the Bible. Here's what the Bible affirms. John chapter one, the word became human and made his home. Literally that word is tabernacled or pitched his tent among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. John is telling us that when Jesus was born, he's saying the presence of God, the presence of God came to his people so that when he was Emmanuel, God with us, right? So when Jesus died on the cross, what happened? The temple was destroyed, just like Jesus said. And just like he also said, he said, destroy this temple and in three days what's gonna happen? Now it's going to be raised up. It's going to be restored. He was talking about the resurrection. What we're going to celebrate in a couple of weeks here. And what about that temple in Jerusalem, by the way? That had already been destroyed and rebuilt. It would be destroyed in AD 70, never to be rebuilt. And that's where you can still visit the western wall. Some call it the wailing wall. A very holy place where people go and stick their prayers in the little cracks in the wall. So let's ask this, if the Old Testament temple, ornate as it was, was a sign pointing forward to Jesus, what's the significance for us? What does it mean for you and me? I like to boil this down to one phrase that you can say with me, I hope you'll say it several times today, and it's this, Jesus, you're with me right now. Would you say that with me, ready? Jesus, you're with me right now. When you go to lunch today, Jesus, you're with me right now. When you're watching whatever sport later on today, maybe on TV, Jesus, you're with me right now. You're out in the Metro Parks, Jesus, you're with me right now. It's a relationship, first of all. It's not about jumping through religious hoops. It's not a bunch of obligations to fulfill. Our faith is about knowing a person. In your notes today, you can find in their online bulletin or maybe you pick some up on your way in. It says this, in the Old Testament, the meeting point for God and his people was a place. Today, the meeting point for God and his people is what? It's a person. 
It's in Jesus that you and I, he's our temple. We don't have to make a pilgrimage somewhere. You don't have to make a trip to a building in Jerusalem because the Bible tells us God does not live in temples built by human hands. It says that twice in the book of Acts. And they wanted to stone Stephen for that and actually did. The place where you meet with God is through Jesus Christ and he's always with you if you've invited him to come into your life. And here's the amazing invitation of Jesus. He says to us, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. You know, he still makes the same invitation today to you and to me. He says, Jonathan, Alex, Sue, Bill, Janet, come to me. Come to me when you're weary and burdened. Come to me when you're feeling strong and energized. Come to me whenever. And I will give you rest for your souls. And so much more besides. He gives us forgiveness and life and living water and strength and all that we need to live a life that honors him. Would you say it with me again? That phrase I want us just to drill down deep in our lives. You ready? Jesus you're with me right now. He's your temple. In fact, something changes when I decide to put my faith in Christ. When you do that, when you invite him into your life, the temple now lives where the temple comes and lives in you. So, so there's, a, there's a, another aspect of this when you read in the scriptures, and it's this. Paul writes this. He says, God has chosen to make known the glorious riches of this mystery. This is Colossians 1 which is Christ in you, right? The hope of glory. God's address has changed. You can take that into your most ordinary day or your darkest hour. Let us strengthen you and fill you with hope to think of the honor that God has bestowed on you, that the one who lived a perfect life, who loved people without ever messing up, that he, the very God and Lord of the universe, has come to live in me and in you, the very temple of God, alive in me. Lord, you're with me right now. But it's so easy to forget, right? That's one of my worst habits. Oblivious to the most important person in the room, the most important person in my life. I feel like Paul is speaking directly to me when he writes in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do you not know, Jonathan? Maybe you put your name in there. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with the price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. He's saying this has huge implications. My body doesn't belong to me anymore. These are not my hands. These are not my feet. These are not my eyes. These are not my ears. They belong to whom? They belong to him. That he's come to live within me. And now I become his temple because the temple now lives in me. Sometimes we get the old address, you know, we start to think that God lives in a church building or a cathedral. In fact, sometimes you'll hear a, a dad, you maybe you've visited some cathedral in, you know, downtown Cleveland or New York City or been Europe or something, 
and you'll, some kids being real noisy, you'll hear dad go, son, son, be quiet. You're in God's house. Is that boy in God's house? No, not the way the dad is meaning it. Sometimes you'll have people here at Grace, they'll go, hey, hey, quit running around. Don't you know this is the Lord's house? This building is not the Lord's house, right? Who's the Lord's house? That's you if you put your trust in Christ. That's me. We've said it around here a lot before. We've said people don't walk into church. The church walks into the building. Would you say that with me aloud as well? Ready? Let's say it together. People don't walk into church. The church walks into the building. Friends, when you leave here today, those of you at Lorraine Correctional, when you leave that chapel area today, uh, those of you who are engaging online, you think I'm going to at some point turn off this device. You're, you're not leaving Jesus at grace, the Holy Spirit. You are taking him with you. Think of the cloud. Remember it says the presence of the Lord filled the tabernacle and then the temple as like a, a great cloud, right? Think of that happening in your life. God's spirit filling you, his, the cloud of his presence filling your life, descending on you. Let that strengthen you and encourage you and fill you with hope. With Jesus in us, we are the temple of God, right? We are the temple of God. Because the new and better temple has come to live within us. You're going to see a, an image of that here on the screen. We are God's temple. I remember hearing about a 19th century Orthodox pastor, Father John of Kronstadt. Most of his fellow clergymen refused to visit the villages that surrounded their cathedrals because chronic poverty had, had caused this palpable sense of just um, uh, uh, addiction and, and brokenness that it felt like it was a dangerous place to wander into. And so a lot of the, the pastors would just stay more in the confines of their building, but not Father John. Father John would go out and he would see people. He'd get into the alleyways and into the places where people, homeless people were living and he'd find some man who had done who knows what the night before and was sleeping off whatever he had done. And, and he would take the man's face in his hands and he'd say, look at me, look at me. What you're doing is beneath your dignity. You were created to house the fullness of God. You were created to house the fullness of God. And they said that wherever Father John would go, that revival began to break out because people began to realize who and whose they were. That they were intended to be the very temple of Jesus, God himself. Friends, it's true for you today that you were designed to house the very fullness of God. We don't have to go visit a building. We don't have to be at a facility on Sunday for God to be with us. We can know wherever we are. This is what I want to do to overcome one of the worst habits in my life, that wherever I am, when I've invited Jesus to come into my life, he is 
with me. All of his strength and his power and his grace. And he deserves my obedience and submission and my praise and my trust. He wants to do life with me. He wants to do life with you. You were created to house the very fullness of God's presence. Let's just invite him to have his way and, and to fill us with himself. Would you, would you pray with me? You just pray with me, come Holy Spirit, just quietly, just come Holy Spirit. Fill my life like the presence of the Most High filled the temple to the extent that there was a cloud that kept the people from ministering. It was so thick. Lord, I pray for a sense of your presence in my life. that I wouldn't forget, I wouldn't be oblivious, I wouldn't be like Jacob and say, surely the Lord is in this place and I've not been aware of it. So Lord, we pray for an awareness of your presence that we would live the truth that when we trust in you, you come and live in us and we belong to you. So Lord, here we are, surrendered to you. We're not our own. We've been bought with the price, the price, Jesus, of your blood, and we owe our lives to you. So thank you for inviting us. What a great privilege is ours to know your presence and strength and peace and everything else that you offer. Jesus, we want you to be at home in us. Make that a reality, I pray for us today and tomorrow and every day this week, Jesus. In your name we pray. And everyone who wants it to be so said, amen, amen.